Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we're delighted to welcome here to the school Professor Richard Rose. Uh, this is the latest in a series of uh, public talks uh, under the title Perspectives on Europe, organized by the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. And those of you, which I suspect is many in the audience who uh, engage in social media, should know that uh, you can Twitter this at hash LSE Europeans as one word. And also to know that the event is being recorded and will be podcast on the LSE website. Now, Richard Rose is very well known to uh, many of us in the political science uh, community. Uh, he told me just a moment ago that he'd recently celebrated his 80th birthday, uh, which uh, is a pretty phenomenal thing to still be writing what is, I think, now his 55th book. 45th. 45th, sorry, you've got another 10 to go uh, in the course of a very long and distinguished career. Uh, he established the Department of Politics at Strathclyde University and created its Centre for the Study of Public Policy there in 1976, and he is still director of that institution. Uh, I remember the first book that he published back in, not that I was <laughs> reading it at the time, but uh, it was a great uh, source of interest to me, uh, the 1959 British General Election book, which he wrote with David Butler. And as a student at Nuffield, in fact, uh, the part that was part of the Nuffield election series, uh, his book, The Problem of Party Government, I found probably the most insightful and interesting forward analysis of the breakdown of the British two-party system and the challenges of the new kind of politics which were emerging. And his interests have ranged across virtually every aspect of political science and most countries and continents. Now, he's turned his uh, attention recently to the politics of the European Union, focusing characteristically on some of the most interesting and important issues in the academic study of the Union at the moment, especially the issues of democracy and legitimacy in its institutions, and whether it is fated to become a multi-speed enterprise. The resulting book, Representing Europeans, a Pragmatic Approach, was published this spring by Oxford University Press. Copies are available outside, and uh, Professor Rose will be signing any copies uh, here on the stage uh, after this uh, event. Uh, the great strength of the book, I think, is its very fresh, clear, and penetrating analysis of questions which are either often enveloped in a kind of romantic mysticism about uh, European integration or um, bedeviled and overloaded with technicalities, as so often writing about the European institutions is what Nicolas Sarkozy once memorably described as the ennui motel, which envelops much uh, Euro literature. The timing of this inquiry uh, is also very opportune, with the Eurozone debt crisis uh, showing how far uh, the uh, powers and the role of the uh, European Union now penetrates uh, the aspects of uh, daily life of more and more Europeans. And, of course, with the European elections less than uh, a year away in May next year, uh, in which the established political parties uh, across the continent fear the rise of new populist forces. So in joining us this evening, Professor Rose has kindly agreed to set out some of the key propositions through a series of uh, PowerPoint uh, slides from his new book to discuss parties, elections, referenda in Europe, and also, of course, to take your questions and comments uh, at the end of his talk. So without further ado, Professor Richard Rose. Uh, thank you very much. 
It's a great pleasure to be back at the MSC. I matriculated here when rationing was on and when Bob McKenzie was described as a bright young man and hadn't set the cat amongst the pigeons. And I had many enjoyable discussions. I can't say they were in a lecture hall, but my wife owes her political allegiance to attending Harold Lasky's lectures because after listening to Lasky, she went out and joined the conservative club. <laughs> I myself am a European, but not an EU citizen. So that will help explain where I'm coming, what makes me different, even if you don't know or agree with where I'm coming from. <laughs> um, I'll lay out a series of propositions and the questions, the debate, the immediate relevance you can follow, we can follow up on. But I think one ought to start with some basics to clear the ground. Democracy, conventional definition of universal suffrage, choosing a government, uh, holding the government accountable through elections. Within the member states, they are all democracies. Within the candidate states, they more or less express an idea of keeping, of being democratic with their own distinctive national traditions. But they elect representatives. Uh, this is a problem that Britain presents, that it's democratic. I'm giving a talk in Brussels called Too Much or Too Little Democracy. Too much national democracy. <laughs> Not enough. EU accountability. <clears throat> the government's accountable to a representative assembly. Italy is a member state to illustrate. It's accountable to the courts. The courts are open, the rule of law. And the Portuguese government said that something they agreed in Brussels and got through Parliament was unconstitutional. The German Parliament and the, the German courts are hiding in German abstractions, but they want to let the government know the courts are open. And the government needs a renewed mandate. And while you're thinking of the British election, I think most Europeans are thinking of the German election. And my German election friends, experts say, the question is how many parties will be in the parliament? It's just because each, the minimum is 30 seats if you're in, and that makes things more complicated. <coughs> now, within the European Union institutions, and I stumbled across this very early and defined the shape of the book, you have checks and balances. But then, after all, Cromwell and others, this is 17th century English, History, you can check an overweening executive. And that part of the complaint uh, is that there are too many checks and balances. It takes forever to get anything done, though it will happen. But the commission represents the principle of an ever closer union, a phrase that's very meaningful to full-time EU people and difficult to understand that that was there when Britain signed up. 
European Council represents states. Members of the European Council have plenipotentiary power. Uh, the trouble, as the Italian election showed, was that the president wasn't the government, but the president didn't have a government to send to the European Council, except Monty, who'd finished fourth, who'd just been repudiated. But it's this distinction between representing states, which are unities, and representing people where people disagree within a country. <coughs> They're elected within national constituencies, but the European Parliament basically votes as a black-red coalition. And if in 2014 there are more anti-EU MEPs returned, Britain has already made a certain contribution, the black-reds will hold together more, and the liberals will start to get discipline and come in too. So it's more or less impossible to get around what you might call this coalition, some would call it a cartel. The court of justice is the rule of law, and this bothers, this plus the Strasbourg courts, bothers people in the great tradition of the English rule of law, as if this was unique to this island and not the rest of the UK like Northern Ireland. <coughs> the central bank represents one of a principle in the two-party system of economics where Harvard would rather play Yale but they suddenly find that Chicago's won on certain key principles like the Eurozone. But you end up with weak commitment because so many of the major players don't represent people in the conventional democratic accountability. Each has a justification, each has an explanation, but that doesn't justify calling the EU system democratic as that word is used as I define a normal usage. <coughs> EU council members represent a fraction of their voters. They have the power until the next election to govern their country, but they use that power to sign treaties under international law, which are very difficult to repudiate and impossible to amend because that requires another, uh, another treaty intergovernmental negotiation. And again, I stumbled on this distinction between binding states. Everybody goes to war. We understand this as a collective action problem. But not everybody goes for the austerity policy that 25 states have signed up to. And you run that back through a coalition cabinet, through a parliament, which is a bit dodgy, a forthcoming election, and you can see that national democratic politics makes this rather difficult because the, um, and the, in the case of the United Kingdom, the Queen is committed to the Lisbon, government is committed to the Lisbon Treaty by a government elected by 35% of the people, 
and Gordon Brown couldn't stand to be in the same room with the other states when he signed it. He signed it alone. With his vote going down to 29%, this is a legitimate grievance because Cameron thought there'd be an election and then there'd be a referendum. But it's this sort of accident that creates international law binding treaties, but it's a bit hard to convince everybody that's a good justification. <coughs> the EU citizens are not normally consulted on this. Referendums, if you look at how national constitutions are amended, Ten of the member states require a referendum. Almost all of them require some sort of supermajority or concurring majority. In other words, they separate everyday legislation from big things, whatever big things are. But when it comes to the uh, European treaties, uh, which are constitutional-type acts, the signature of a government with 49% of the vote is deemed sufficient. And when a national referendum is called, which is possible under the EU treaty, it has the power to veto. Now, no national constitution requires, to my knowledge, requires unanimity to amend. But the EU does. And then you get these accidents like Denmark, where you can try and fix the, the legal interpretation Tony Blair would understand, or Ireland, where the courts won't be fixed. <coughs> but you get these very funny things where one country can shoot everything down, or you get into another form of politics. But if you're going to have European citizens to let a small arbitrary fraction decide commitments, it doesn't fit in normal democratic structures. Now, with respect to the European Parliament, this pie chart is based on a survey of electorates from which we pulled out those who actually voted, which is about 45% of EU electorates. Secondly, we compared the program on which their national party fought the EP election with the, with the views of the voters on European integration. And the views could be either far more an ever closer union. They could be as it is, more or less. There are three choices. The status quo is always an option. And what it shows is that amongst the electorate that half agreed with the party program, the other half didn't. And of course, what happens is that most of the EU MEPs actually favor 
an ever closer union. It's perfectly reasonable because if you're going to have a hell of a difficult life and everything else, you tend to believe that, that the EU is a good thing and enacting bills as laws. It's difficult to, to sit there for two parliaments and just say, I want to say no. You, know, you don't judge your activity by how few laws. You can say this is a joke, but it's not the way the world or parliaments work. They, they want to do things. <coughs> <coughs> the interesting thing is that the median European is not pro... Um, he tends to have a neutral view either don't know or it depends. It depends is certainly a... You don't need a PhD to hint your comments. <laughs> Ordinary people can say it depends. And this is terribly important because that's a large block. It's a swing block. And in the current discourse, in this city, it's ignored. I talked to the Federal Trust yesterday this time. They are old line pro ever closer unions. And my message was, <laughs> there's 30% to play for. <laughs> and they all came in, not with hobbies, but with security blankets over their <laughs> Because they were so afraid of UKIP that they weren't interested. It's, it's very hard to get across the message that there are a lot of people who are in the middle. And if you think as a party politician, you want to try and bring them to your side. And um, I offered the Federal Trust and my three things they could do, they could answer a question that's been hanging around for 51 years from Dean Acheson. Britain's lost an empire. What is its role? You know, what's Britain's vision of the world? You know, Tony Blair had one. It's trust me. <laughs> but, you know, Churchill or Macmillan would have put it a little more impersonally. This is really, you know, where is this country going? And can you stop the world? But these are in the... But I was surprised by how little this pro-EU group was not thinking in terms of this is the vision. You could then say, well, let's say the EU as it is is a good thing. Okay, well... The other side can say, you know, let's run a campaign for the people who brought you Pearl Harbor <laughs> or, or, or the Eurozone crisis. <laughs> you know, would you buy bonds from them? So the current EU is both uncertain, it's a funny mixture of pluses and minuses, and uh, many it also gets caught up in the austerity uh, reflation debate. I would also add 
but it's a technocratic document that was negotiated by an elite under severe time pressure that was presented as a fait accompli to national parliaments that were not the sort of long campaigns to mobilize support. And it's technocracy without technique. That is, it could have been designed by economic Trotskyites because a number of the goals are impossible. So if you really want to sell the EU as it is, read the stability pact, see if you can predict what will happen, see if you'll find the French for missing their targets, etc., etc., etc. You know, the EU as it is will keep on being what it is by cheating on the stability pact, and this will, some people in the Financial Times, Martin Wolf would argue, this would be economically more rational. Um, you want to leave the EU as it is. Now, this is a very important point because the logic of most constitutions is that they can be amended. The Grund Gesetz of the Federal Republic of Germany, 1949, has a couple of paragraphs that are called the Eternity Clause because of world historical events. There were certain things never again the German government should be allowed to do. The European Union had eternity clause is 100,000 pages long, and it's called the acquis communautaire, because the logic is political. It's taken us so long to agree all of these things, that if we reopen it, either for a new member state like Poland, I've heard the Polish ambassador say when negotiating, but we weren't consulting. Surely we should be consulting. Well, pity. <laughs> you'll, well, you'll never be admitted if we have to renegotiate with everybody. So you have the EU as it is, it's hard to roll backwards. This means that the dumb anti-Euros uh, want something that's impossible. The bright anti-Euros know that Cameron can't deliver, and the default option is something that's consistent with the Lisbon Treaty, which is exit. If, you, if Cameron goes to Brussels, or British Prime Minister goes to Brussels, he has to get the consent of other major countries. You can't call a renegotiating meeting without a, some Flemish person or somebody saying, all right, I'll call a meeting and this is the agenda. And you'll go around and everybody will have things that they think could be done better. There's no doubt that pro-EU people who know it would not claim it's perfect. On the other hand, to unpick it in the middle of currency crisis and everything else, and to do it for a country that isn't sure whether it would stay anyway, and to do it unilaterally, we'll do this, 
if you'll do that on banking regulation or whatever it may be. It's just a British prime minister would need an awful lot of political preparatory work in order to get treaty reform because on the continent, the fear is that even though most referendums carry for the EU, if it's a democratic referendum, there's a risk of losing. And if one out of 27 can sink everything, <laughs> the risk is a little bit higher. On the other hand, you can't, it's madness to assume that two dozen or so nationally elected prime ministers would agree to things that are politically indefensible in their own country. They will agree to things that have good things and not so good things, but that's the nature of politics, making concessions. It's, it's how you used to read the how climatly a lecture in this school. Read the Labour Party, you got people to compromise and you don't want them to split. <laughs> the EU approach, however, is to leave citizens undisturbed. It was founded by bargaining amongst... It was an era of 19th century people who'd lived under multiple flags, multiple regimes, and thought, uh, we shouldn't lose this one too. The continental equivalent of the labor government bringing in the welfare state rather than going back to Baldwin, Snowden in 1931 was to denationalize states that had been at war. And this succeeded, but it was very much an elitist and often Catholic, which was much more readily transnational to their credit than um, national social democrats. Integration by stealth, constitutional convention in the early 2000s was, had elected people in it, but in no sense could you say it was representative of European citizens. And when a proposal came forward, uh, to have it put it to a pan-European referendum to test commitment. Giscard gaveled it down, and John Kerr, who was secretary, uh, a former head of the Foreign Office, civil servant, was happy to torpedo it. It was very much an elitist document in the way it was actually drafted. It was drafted in an executive committee. <clears throat> so that was what happened. That's the what, how we get to where we are, but where are we? The last parts of the book emphasize interdependence. Interdependence is something that all military people have, because you can't fight an enemy unless it's there. Also, people in the foreign exchange market realize, because you can't exchange currencies unless there's somebody out there. And people doing import-export, Cobden and Bright, wanted to increase trade. So interdependence is simply observable. There are a couple of questions. First of all, 
what do you do about the interdependencies we have? In terms of guns, there's NATO. You may like it or dislike it, but it's a recognition of interdependencies. In terms of the Eurozone, there is no agreement about who pays, under what conditions, and in terms of the balance between deficit, production, and growth. <coughs> so there are pressures for collective action, God knows, on a relatively stagnant European economy, in which case Britain is part of Europe, or part of the world economy. <coughs> um, but uh, there's no consensus. There's also no consensus about whether a new treaty is necessary. There's a feeling it's undesirable to consult the peoples of Europe. There's certainly a Brussels consensus. Representative democracy, which is not, which represents principles more than people in the conventional, which is not account, can't be accountable because of the way they're put together, or only indirectly. However, these, what are the stability pacts, the final paragraph says, we've got to do something to legalize this. Because what you've got is sort of one and a half structures. You've got a 27 country EU, 28 with Croatia, Britain, half in, attitude toward interdependence, it's not stop the world we want to get off. We want to get half off, half in. <coughs> but you've got all of these things going on, and to have the Eurozone, 17 countries, 18 countries, doing something else and exchanging hundreds of billions of money and pledging this and that, it's a bit odd, and the Germans tend to think in terms of, of structures and institutions, and um, it makes sense to not to try and write these things down in a hurry, especially if you're supposed to enforce them with hundreds of billions in potential fines. <coughs> There's also a problem of who represents the citizens of Europe. Is it their national governments or is it the European External Action Service? Well, now, there are three types of arenas, guns, money, and security. The EU has a standing in money through the Eurozone. It's a member of EBRD, and it's a member of the World Trade Organization, and has a standing on Europe-American trade relations, agricultural products. There's an Anglo-American problem of paying for deals struck 60 years ago that actually Hollande, if he spoke English, wouldn't want to unpick. Um, and that's a problem. Having said that, <coughs> you have a wider Europe, which is uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation, the people who review um, elections. Uh, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development has now got Japan and Korea in it because they're interested in 
having an investment portfolio in areas which EBRD supports, which you've got about 300 million people, and some of them are neighboring states, as well as Turkey, which is, can be in. And then they're moving into Meta, Middle East, and North Africa. But this is what you might call a wider Europe. But in most of these places, it's only national governments. So you have to ask yourself, if the EU is to speak for Europe, including Britain, what would they say in the end of the joke has it, that they be don't know when you dial up and you get a, a French foreign policy, a German foreign policy, you get a choice. And therefore, though pro-Europeans are correct that there are some things the EU can do on trade negotiations with the US and China. It, there are a lot of things it can't do, like, like, like Syria or Libya, let alone Iraq or Afghanistan. And uh, this gets rather serious. <coughs> Limits to further integration you can call them hurdles or obstacles, things to be got over or got round. First of all, they're illegal. The UK 2011 Referendum Act was a trophy for Bill Cash put forward by the Foreign Secretary, whose terms of reference was to negotiate peace with Tory backbenchers. It might be regarded like accepting the occupation of the Rhineland in 1936. It lasted for a year or two. But it hasn't worked because uh, while many conservative critics of the EU have recent views, some of them just want out and will accept nothing less than an in-out referendum. And the hardest of the hardliners wouldn't even accept defeat. Germany has courts in parliament which scrutinize these things, have a coalition and a federal government, and the chancellor is a Democrat, and a politician who listens to people, and the German courts don't want to jeopardize their German democracy. German MPs don't want to pass to Brussels control of their budget, just in case they have problems with their economy. <laughs> Weak enforcement of existing standards. If you talk about enlargement conditionality, and Jim Hughes in the government department has published on this, you see what happened with Bulgaria and Romania. It didn't work. It didn't work with Italy or Greece either. And that six of the eight countries that are Catholic countries fail both the democracy, stable democracy test with Freedom House data or the corruption test with Transparency International. And to overlook all this tells you something about what you might call mission creep of more countries, small countries. I'm not against stabilizing Macedonia. On the other hand, the question is, uh, do we want to participate or not? Uh, the stability pact, as I've mentioned, is technocracy 
without technic. <coughs> the targets are set as 3%, a hard number, and a four-digit year. If I drafted it, I would have fought to the end to make it a clear goal so you could measure progress toward the goal. And as long as you're making progress, we'll accept your excuses. Nobody's perfect. And you could, you know, you can backslide one year in four. But if you say you do it in three years, and the Portuguese and the Irish are good boys and girls, so they get seven years, stretching it out means you'll never hit the target. We don't expect you to. And when you, the IMF doesn't like it, and the board of the IMF is not run by Europeans. And they think this is being unfair because the Asian crisis was not resolved by stretch-outs and by the sort of fudge that's working in Europe. So I think uh, that we have limits to integration and limits to repatriation that the a key is not up for negotiation. The EU, it's not a question of what people would like or prefer, but the only thing that anybody who knows their legal powers can offer is in or out. And a third of the governing party isn't frightened by that, of MPs and are fanning flames in that direction. The recommendation for the pro-EU group, given the way they are situated, it's Hilaire Belloc, don't let go of nurse for fear of something worse. It's a very small C conservative. It's the argument for maintaining the bloc vote in the trade union or something like that, or the trade unions contributing to the Labour Party. That's the way it is. Don't rock the boat. The amount of time it would take to negotiate all the adaptations required for withdrawal is far greater than that which was required in the case of 17 80s. It took the Americans longer to make, sort their own problems out than to cut themselves off from the queen, the king, King George. But the growth of government, the growth of interdependencies, the structures, multinational companies, residents, this and that. I mean, can you imagine border authorities rounding up 100,000 Romanians? Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's just the amount of time, effort, and uncertainty. And if there's one thing that the city of London doesn't like, it's uncertainty. And that this affects full inward foreign investment. Ford Motor Company, where do they invest at the margin? They don't have to invest in England. Uncertainty is dreadful. What I observe in Scotland is on the Scottish referendum is that people who believe in the status quo, which is the integration of this island, 
were not arguing as they would have uh, 75 years ago or 50 years ago for the greatness of Britain. They are arguing about the risk of change. It's a leap in the dark. We don't know what currency you'll use. When I came to England in 53, no one I knew had ever been there. People said, where will you sleep? I'll say, I'll find a hotel, and if there isn't any, I'll go in the hotel business. <laughs> I mean, to say, on the one hand, to say that Scotland couldn't become an couldn't adjust its interdependencies, couldn't elect 20 MEPs and pull out of the Westminster Parliament, is absurd. On the other hand, to say it would take a good while, there'd be all sorts of transition things, do we really want to risk it? What's the gain? And that this is the kind of practical, pragmatic argument, but I wouldn't say it's a very good argument. What I call the, it's not a principled argument. I'm not against pragmatism. The pragmatic approach in the book is a case-by-case -case evaluation of options. And withdrawal is different than banking regulations <coughs> or LIBOR or whatever. Each problem has its own diagnosis. The consensus usually ends up marginalizing a couple of small countries who know that they can't stop the train. Britain has now reduced itself to being at risk of being dispensable because its bona fides can be doubted or even its durability. If you were sitting in a Central European country and wanted somebody to push something at a meeting of European Union institutions, you might agree with Britain, but a wise British policy would be to say, well, let the Dutch put it forward. They, they agree with us too, or the Swedes, or even the Austrians. I mean, it's just, uh, Britain is being self-repressed, opting out. I think a new treaty, there's a case to be made for a pan-European referendum, because it builds commitments. Losers have to consent. You have to have clauses for people to opt out. And that's how you deal with people who don't agree with you, big or small. It's inconceivable that 27 prime ministers would put forward a treaty 15 to 13. You know, there'd have to be such a breadth of agreement, but not everybody. And there are very interesting stuff about political theory that the essence of democracy is losers accept they've lost. The essence of paranoia is that you can never win because you always want more. And that the logic of a differentiated integration, Jean-Claude Peris, who's, who's been the lawyer for the commission, has published a book saying how it can work under existing treaties, and he coordinated or authored, his team wrote them, 
So this is a pragmatic, practical thing. <coughs> the implication of having different groups of member states, which exist on Schengen, exist on the Eurozone, exist on military defense, and exist on European interventions in Libya, in the nearer Poland, is uncertain because the talk of two-speed Europe, which gets the antis running for the exit, uh, assumes that everybody's going in the same direction. And that's a very good example of what I might call Euro theme, that the really the choice is a tempo and the groupings in which we move toward an ever closer union. Well, in Britain, this is observably not the case. And in Norway and in Iceland, there's a debate about directions or a different view. But if the policy works, then the two-speed thing becomes leaders and laggards. That is actually the way in which the United Kingdom joined the EU, because it said it's not for us for various reasons. And it took several attempts fully or half-heartedly, but it then took from Macmillan through Heath, it took more than a decade, <coughs> to catch up and to be admitted happily. So differentiated integration is a form of a kind of experiment or natural experiment which federal countries are accustomed to. The other possibility is people don't want to catch up. And the Eurozone is a very good example because countries that aren't in the Eurozone aren't planned and aren't committed to Britain and Sweden are not about to want to get in. They found that being out was so far has been tolerable. The logic of all this is an ever looser union. To talk about the EU breaking up is absurd to talk about the instabilities leading to the stability pact, producing a monetary and a political union and budgets being, main lines for budgets being laid down in Brussels for 28 nationally elected parliaments. It's not something I would, I would expect to see in my grandchildren's lifetime or not long foreseeable future. But an ever looser union may be a more agreeable union. It's a little more complicated, but God knows it's complicated already. There's plenty of differentiated integration. But the key political point of principle of the pragmatic approach is the European Union becomes a byproduct rather than a goal. And being in or out, it moves the debate from being in or out to what do we want to do about trade with Asia, with China. Well, there I think a strong case can be made that a collective EU approach is stronger in Beijing than Britain on its own. Certainly. Uh, but there are other things where you might reasonable people might take a different view, and I think that the 
muddiness of turning this into a great inner out is ignoring interdependence, which is the world as it actually is. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Rose, for that uh, presentation. Uh, we now have uh, about half an hour for questions and comments. So those in the audience who would like to pose a question or make an observation, uh, please uh, signal your interest in doing so. Please. And if you'd just like to introduce yourself uh, very briefly so that Professor Rose knows who, who you are. If you look at the classic functions of the state, which is security, money, by security I mean safety and international defense, the EU has a strong economic competence on trade, and that makes sense. In some ways it's less free trade that my fellow reform club members were confident and bright, but at least it's a big negotiating block in a big world. Uh, NATO uh, has never been exclusively EU, exclusively democratic, and that there are differences between Poland and Germany about where threats are, etc., etc. Security. Uh, Interpol was founded in 1906 in Vienna, and I think the bigger risk, which includes the smuggling of women, drugs, and possibly plutonium, are more in the area of Interpol. And it's a very, it's not something you discuss at the Council of Ministers, but it's a very operational thing, whether they know what they're doing, whether it's wrong, or not, but these are classic areas. Other things of which the single Europe market is a very good example. Well, reasonable people can debate this between Jacques Delors, who is a social market, social markets people, which would include the various popes, and Germans tend to go that way as against Anglo-Americans and Thatcher, this is clearly a partly political issue where there may be some compromises. Uh, is that a, what I think is needed is a bit more attention to decentralization. Whoever dreamed up in the Cyprus, and let me just give you one example, you should haircut Cypriots with 8,000 euros as well as Russians with 8 million. Clearly, 
could never have been a chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1940s or 1950s British cabinet. I mean, the insulation from politics of that decision is illustrative. So I think you need a little bit more. The notion of a referendum is, can I defend this? This is a dual accountability. And that the EU system, I think, puts too much stock on the treaty obligations rather than accountability to our citizens is a two-way street. Look at the European Citizens Initiative. If a million people in seven countries sign and they can register, this is a very low, it's a low and a legal, you know, it's clear threshold, you know, it's fair enough. But the obligation is for the commission to come back and tell them what they think of it. And then it can evaporate. Well, this shows you just how much dialogue accountability there is. Uh, it doesn't get the commitment you need for really issues where the costs come before the benefits, and this is the current commission, economic and financial policy. Can I just ask you from the chair a question following directly from this? Why do you favour a pan-European referendum rather than, say, the direct election by the public of the President of the European Commission <coughs> or the President of the European Council or a President of Europe, as Tony Blair has, has advocated? <laughs> well, first of all, I don't expect to be elected President of Europe. <laughs> but um, when you look at a... A single official elected for a five-year term, it has to be a very generalized mandate, and it doesn't have any accountability that you can tie down to a particular policy. The business of having a campaign in 23 languages also fudges it. But if I may put on my cephalogical hat, <coughs> and I've talked to Andrew Duff and others who are foreign, you only have two parties that basically operate in the European Parliament in every country. The socialists normally have one party per country. They could have a party in Congress. The EPP has about 40 parties for 26 states. The whole business of selecting a candidate or how many candidates you get in the first round, you could easily get 20, 19%, as you do in France. You'd have to have a two-round ballot. You would also make transparent the consequences of degressive proportionality. In in, I published an article on the EP. If you look at the way seats are allocated so small states get more and the big states are capped, simple mathematical formula, the politics was acceptable um, in 1957 
and is broadly acceptable as long as you don't squint too hard or have to take it out and resell it. But with electoral college votes or whatever, when you look at the European Parliament and say this is democratic to a Martian, its inequalities have a GD index of 27. The U.S. Senate has 50. The German Bundestag has 35. It's a tolerable degree of inequality. The U.S. House of Representatives and the German lower house have four as against the EU's 25. And to get that into the counting the votes, you'd have to wait the votes for the president so the votes will be counted unequally and the inequalities are such. So you're assuming that uh, uh, the direct election of the president of Europe would require an electoral college? No, it would require a justifiable system for counting the votes of several hundred million Europeans. Something that could be defended widely before the system was implemented, quite apart from once the person got there. Uh, the person would then have to go into all sorts of coup handle and other things, and there's not a party there either. I mean, I've actually gone through the factor analysis of manifestos with 28 issues, and that the one thing that, where there's clear agreement is on more integration of the EP in the European party groups. But the really big problem is, I mean, at the risk of sounding like somebody who never went to university, like Bill Deeds. I suspect many of the people in the audience don't know who Bill Deeds is, but he was but a conservative cabinet minister who became No, he's a, a very shrewd person who used to say to me, do you, you know, keep it simple, Richard, because I've got to explain it to the owner. I'll quote Bernard Donahue who was a senior lecturer before he went off to Wilson's Downing Street, he said, do you actually expect me to take this to the Home Secretary, your proposal to reduce the killing in Northern Ireland? Do you actually expect to take an electoral system for waiting three European votes and put it out for public scrutiny? I don't think it would work very well. Let's take another question. I think uh, here... Um, I think that's the error of uh, Prime Minister Paul Dettel and Fellow Institute. Um, I'd like to make two separate points on the mayor. First one is this. Um, it seems to me that the, the weakness of representation in the European Union is part of a, of a wider malaise uh, of our representative democracies in Europe. You know, if you look at opinion polls and surveys, you see that trust in national institutions are all even lower than in the European but to be fair, of course, attachment to the national sphere and polity is far greater than to the European one. How much space should be put into <coughs> national democracies to come to the rescue of European democracy if national democracies are also in a rather pretty fragile state? Um, second point is, I've got some sympathy with your idea about rescuing sort of the idea of multi-speed Europe in a slightly different fashion. Uh, because we may have gone far or too far in the direction of different tiers, different
defined by institutional choice, primarily by the membership of the EU and of the Euro, and less by policy and political ambitions. You know, what are the countries, what are the countries who drive, would like to drive forward a particular project? Now, the question I have is, you know, how much space do you see for further differentiation is if the Euro, the Euro area, seems to be so all-consuming of what the countries, um, you know, need to do in order to save the Eurozone. So how much, how much space do you see for, for this kind of model you propose if we have the Euro and uh, it's here to stay? <coughs> um, the first point, the 1957 reflects recognized failure of national governments. What we've got today, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but clearly um, the Greeks and the Italians don't trust their national government and the attitudes toward Europe, toward EU institutions and liberal Romanians. And I'm getting emails from the Hungarians who are looking to Brussels to save them from their own government. I mean, these are very serious issues. How, so it gets, whereas other countries are pretty comfortable, and the Swedes perhaps more than the Finns these days. So you do have, for some countries today, uh, Brussels uh, is better. And the other point is, as 2020 three member states are small states. Austria and Denmark would rather be in the room with Germany than on the outside. The Belgium would rather be in the room with the French. They give small states a chance to know what's going on, to exercise their influence early. The attitudes, I've been doing a project interviewing permanent representatives of small states are very shrewd politically because they know there's limits on what they can do. The question is, are you in the room or out? A big state with a, a government not trusted by its own electorate, Italy today, on the one hand, the Italians may look to Brussels, but it's a problem both for Brussels and the Greeks have problems too. The peculiarity of, the, uh, of Britain is that it's not quite clear whether, how much or how little confidence. If you, if, if you ask British to compare the government with the Greeks or the Italians, they'd say we have an excellent system if you ask, what do you think of, of the options or why can't we have a majority of governments? We don't trust them all. That's what Farage is running. It's an anti-British anti political class and the Sunday Times is doing its job, etc., etc. Um, um, you know, I've been talking yesterday and today uh, to Labour members of Parliament. You ask them, where does Miliband doesn't have to have a vision, where will he stand the first time a vote comes up? You know, this isn't a very confidence-inspiring 
I'm not in favor of unaccountable leadership, but when politicians are trying to hide or Cameron makes a botch of her, um, you know, it's a pity, and of course, born more than Paris, but, you know, with a big state that's a good government ought to be playing a pragmatic role and has got itself in this position, I think most people in Brussels would say it's a shame, but if Britain pulls itself out of the largest party in the European Parliament, of course, as a chair, you become a civil servant. Indeed. Um, I think somebody at the back wanted to ask a question, though. Uh, yes, Robert Morland. I'm a former member of the European Parliament. I, I was going to go back to one of your slides, the one where you showed um, quite a large percentage, I've forgotten precisely what the percentage was, who are not strongly pro or not strongly against. Uh, Shouting? I think it, isn't it, there's one very similar to that just before, isn't it? That's it. That's it. Um, and what actually strikes me about that <coughs> is probably what it's reflective of is actually only a section of the population um, have really strong feelings, any strength of feelings about it. And this is underlined by the fact that am I not right in saying that opinion polls may say that you know, 58% of people want to leave the EU or whatever it is. But on the other hand, if they list a number of areas of policy, education, etc., etc., Europe is way, way down. In other words, people don't go to bed at night worrying very much about the, the EU. And indeed, not in relation just to this country, but to other countries, we had the negative referendums on the constitutional treaty uh, in France and uh, the Netherlands. Um, and the, government, the governments met that by having the Lisbon Treaty, which was actually by and large only a technical change. It was changing it from a new treaty to amendments to existing treaty. Um, but the, there wasn't a sort of outcry revolution in the streets or really great concerns that this was outrageous of the government to do and I really sort of wonder whether you know what what is actually happening and it goes back to what you said earlier it's about struggles in the Conservative Party it's about um, the ownership of our press which tends to be very Europe anti-European but actually you know the, the public doesn't quite get as excited <coughs> I think what I notice as I trot around is the large extent to which people in most states of Europe accept transnationalism and interdependence. You don't have the doctrine of the sovereignty of parliament and the integrity of borders. Admittedly, it's not just Vienna but Berlin or anywhere, that you get this, and there's, it's not just the war and all that. You know, this is old history, 
but students, they learn English in their classes. The Southern Europeans used to learn German, now maybe they're learning English or whatever. But there's an, there's an acceptance of transnationalism, which um, there is a lot of indifference in this middle group. I had a friend who ran a second Irish referendum. He played, Morris Hayes, he played Hurley for counting down. You know what a Hurley stick is. He just said he looked at him the buggers hadn't campaigned. That's why they lost. And he went around with his Hurley stick, and he was an Irish speaker. <laughs> and he laid it on the line. And what's peculiar about Britain is <coughs> that there was neither the case made explicitly for British leadership. The vagueness of Roy Jenkins wouldn't... I was never in Jenkins' side. I was a crossman. <laughs> Both Tony was cosmopolitan. But people... Macmillan put in the case in the early 60s saying Britain was going to need allies. Britain couldn't go it alone. He'd been in two wars. And he didn't want to be out there alone. And he just had the thing with Kennedy. And that didn't work. But it wasn't a, we need Europe and they need us. When you do focus groups, there's a book coming out in France and in England. The French are pretty nationalistic, too. And they're, they're a big country. You know, the interior of France is, is rather large, more so than this island country. But people are somewhat confused, as you say, and you get a dozen people talking. They know that there are other countries and other forces out there. They can't quite put a name to them. And often the discourse is, well, isn't this a good idea, travel on holidays? Yeah, but how about that? And in a funny way, you can get this kind of, you know, it depends on the issue. But to sell every issue and every chart and tittle as this makes for an ever closer union is a mistake. But whether you call it the shallowness of belief, the other side of it is the sovereignty of parliament. I find this a very odd doctrine and the way it's accepted as a given. Uh, my professor, when I started po writing politics in England 50 years ago, said it all went wrong when Dicey was chopped into the Venerian <laughs> professorship at All Souls and wrote about the sovereignty of Parliament in the 1880s. But there's a ghost of that doctrine around. And sovereign over who? Over the rest of the world or not? And it's the business of... Washington has this problem, too. You know, it's a different kind of problem to follow. <laughs> because Washington gets caught up in... It's of a different scale of powers. 
But the adjustment to interdependence is a problem for big countries and the, the rationale of uh, Britain having won the war <laughs> was a non-trivial statement. I mean, Healy knew four languages, but he'd been on the Italian front. He'd seen the Nini goats. He knew how the communists operated because he'd been one briefly. <laughs> but then, as the rest of the world, Britain hasn't gotten smaller. The rest of the world has gotten bigger and more important, if you follow me. And this is not something that comes naturally to people in the palace of Westminster, whereas I'm sure the <coughs> Labour MP, uh, MEP from Edinburgh, a man who went to university late, I don't think languages were sustained. And uh, David Martin, you may know the name, but I asked him what was the biggest thing that surprised him when he got into the European Parliament. And he said the way in which people talked about, let's try and find some agreement, let's do a deal, let's try and reconcile conflicting interests. He said, he'd come from the Labour Party in Edinburgh, <laughs> and by God, if you had the votes, you smashed them. <laughs> and the whole idea that politics was about reconciling disparate interests by reconciling the French and the German no. And also in the parliament, he's Labour, and you're conservative. But many of these interests are intrinsically transnational. You don't you know that you can do the debate on austerity and uh, infrastructure investment, sequencing. You can do it in any language, and you can explain it. And probably people will say, um, I hadn't realized it was that complicated. <laughs> and at this point, who do we trust comes in to it? Or who is our trustee? Who do we give the fiduciary right? The idea of giving the fiduciary right to a single president of 500 million people and all that, I wouldn't. Even as an American, you say that. One very final question. David Davis asks um, I'm very sympathetic to your ideas about, about Europe, but how, how do we get from here to there? Um. <coughs> there are two issues in Brussels you would have to say, how do we avoid our targets in the stability pact being seen to be a busted flush? France and Germany cheating. And the way we avoid this by in avoiding enforcing penalties, which are in those pacts. And in that sense, that's a victory of responsive and accountability and multi-level democracy. <laughs> because I think that the way out is to take into consideration national problems that's been done for Ireland and Portugal 
the French have less sympathy than the Irish, and Hollande has a harder time, but you can't bring your national problems to other people. So I think the real thing is getting a uh, viable Eurozone system, which is politically ex acceptable, not only to the council, but in retrospect when people take it home, and getting close to the cliff of being challenged. Now, it could happen in many different ways, but the first one is if the nightmare for a Greek president must be he doesn't have a government to send to Brussels for an important discussion. Napolitano had that for months. Okay, in Britain, <coughs> I think uh, that in the circumstances that exist, a British in-out referendum would clear the air And if you're, um, I don't have a vote. <laughs> so I'm not. And uh, I would not be in a campaign. But I would say if one side campaigns and the other doesn't, one side's campaigning, the other isn't. The Cameron thing is seen to be a fraud and a sign of weakness. <laughs> the position of the government in the next parliament. It's not a question of tactics, what should Labour do to avoid this or that. It's a question of you've got to make the pro-Europeans come out and lay it on the line as um, uh, and you've got to make uh, the city, perhaps. Part of that, I think part, I haven't talked to people privately, but my understanding is you could raise an infinite sum of money to keep Britain in the euro if only some politicians, credible politicians, would come forward with the kind of people who are meeting in small rooms. And you've got a to complain about the press, why not exploit the broadcasting media? And that you get, um, you ought to get some fairly robust people talking about big policies. You see, the pragmatism that I recommend is really very problem-specific, as Anne Corbett said. But the really, look, the big issue in Scotland is, it used to be, do we stop or go? You had two choices, Canada, Australia, or London. You don't know what the consequences are. Andrew Schoenfield's it's a journey toward an unknown destination. So to try and reduce it to all these kinds of calculations, <coughs> is to lose the political point, if I may put it this way. And that you, you can only, the air is so confused and 
so irrelevant to the world as it actually is that if you don't have a referendum, you won't get rid of it. And you could cheat. Look, um, if a Labour government comes in and depends upon 50 Scottish MPs, the Tories won't let go, and Simon will be asked <laughs> for, for Devo Max. So, but it's an attempt to give the Scots to say, are we going to stay in the Union? It would shut, the, the nationalists would then have to go over to Devo Max, which is what the next British government says it's in favor of. But it doesn't want to talk about what you found. So I see this evasiveness of, of big issues. Right. And that's what I'm talking about. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Rose, for um, <coughs> those uh, very clear, full answers. And thank you, everybody, for coming this evening. And there's an opportunity to acquire a copy of the book representing Europeans. That's outside. got all the evidence. And there'll be an opportunity to have it signed by the author here on this stage. When you write a book that will come out in nine months, you have to watch what you say, because events can change. But I did call the section on the Eurozone a bridge too far. <laughs> and the English know what that refers to. With Germans, you have to be a bit more tactful. Well, on that note, thank you very much indeed.